I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. Over the last couple of years, I've had great fun interviewing what I call the unsung heroes from behind the scenes of the classical music world. But I've now decided that we're occasionally going to take a little diversion on the stick with a point from these usual guest profiles and speak with some of my friends from the conducting world. And this is the first one. In this episode, my guest is the much loved and highly respected James Judd. Never a man short of a well-thought-out opinion and someone who is passionate about the well-being of our musical world. James, I love speaking with you, and I love speaking with you about not only music and conducting and all those other aspects like that, but I, I also love talking with you about orchestras and the state of the business, if you like. So thanks very much for agreeing to, to speak with me today. And um, maybe you can just let the listeners know a bit more about, about James Judd, the, the conductor, and um, where exactly you've been of late and what you're up to. Well, look, thank you for asking me. It's always been a great pleasure you know, every now and again when we meet one way or another to talk to you. But recently, um, what have I been doing? During these crazy last two years, I've been one of the very fortunate conductors, I think, because I'm music director of an orchestra in South Korea, Daejeon, which is a couple of miles, a couple of hours south of uh, Seoul. And I'm also music director emeritus of the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra with um, uh, a resident visa. So, uh, cut a long story short, I was allowed to get into New Zealand, you know, quarantine, of course. Ended up um, in a lockdown there, staying there for several months, um, the end of last year, for example. And then, because I was one, <laughs> one of the few conductors in captivity there, I was able to, you know, pick up a lot of work, which delighted me. And it was good for the, I mean, you know, the other orchestras had a, had a conductor around. So, between Auckland and Wellington. We did quite a lot. And uh, in Korea, I was able to go in. I had to do two weeks of quarantine four times, uh, which is, you know, it's, quarantine was fine for a while because you have all of that peace and quiet around. You have all those scores to study, books to read. Thank God we have Zoom. We have, you know, can keep in touch with the family and all of that. But by the end of that, you know, a realization that in one year I'd done two months, just solitary confinement in a way, with a bang on the door with food, you know, you have no possibility of meeting anybody. Um, so it was okay, but at the end of that, I, thought, I can't do much more of those, you know, in the end. And then after the two weeks quarantine, we were due to do some big programs, but what usually happened was there were more and more cases. And they said, look, you're only allowed a string orchestra, so we have to change the program. Or you're only allowed, you know, two woodwinds and two brass and strings. So we were constantly sort of downsizing to do programs that were kind of miniature programs compared to what the two-week quarantine had 
had led me to hope for and expect. But, you know, I was very, very lucky because we were often just streaming rather than having an audience. Then, okay, suddenly we could have 30% audience or 50% and so on and so forth. And just very recently, I've come back from um, New Zealand where we, we did the first sort of major subscription series with full audience, uh, both in Auckland and Wellington. And then I did a lot of um, outreach work and education work there, which I love to do. They have a terrific department. And in Korea also, we were able to do a big program a month ago, held in Leben with full audience, both in Daejeon and also in Seoul at the festival. So, you know, and so over this period, I've been, you know, really fortunate um, to have been able to continue to work. Well, the work is one thing, but the, the travel must be something else. Work and quarantine, of course. And you live in the US, but you're talking about work in New Zealand and Korea. And I know you work in so many other places around the world. But that leads me into a question I've, I've often wanted to ask you, which is to do with orchestras and their, their attitudes towards business, if you like. Do you find great differences um, in terms of, I don't know whether it's just enthusiasm or whether it's um, the idea of commitment to, to what we do. Do you find differences in different parts of the world? Well, absolutely. And it's uh, differences that are evolving, I think, and evolving fast, because I, get, I dare to say that the um, pandemic has really focused minds and uh, focused a lot of minds, whether they are soloists, conductor or orchestral musicians and administrative minds, on what we're all doing here and um, exactly how we're going to, you know, bring back the audiences. And it also gives, has given a lot of time for reflection about what all this stuff really means. You know, the um, almost <laughs> on one extreme feeling that this is in a kind of indulgence when there are so many problems in the world, and that's another whole subject, isn't it? I mean, uh, every day things seem to get uh, more alarming in, in, in this world we live. Um, so to justify what we're doing, um, you know, it focuses the mind. Uh, it really does. And I think that there is a great difference between the, the way orchestras are run, administered. For example, in Korea, I love my orchestra, but it's very, very controlled by a city bureaucracy and that brings both um, wonderful consistency in terms of the, the jobs for the musicians, um, but it also brings about a lot of frustrations in terms of trying to move things on and make the lives of musicians better or to try to upgrade uh, their number of concerts, um, bring them more income, more tours, more recording, all kinds of things. For example, the orchestra in Korea under the current you know, bureaucracy, the city orchestras, they have to be reevaluated every year, mm. which is an immense strain for the musicians. It's absurd. And they know that I think that, and I try to change it. And an administrative amount of work for a small administration that's just mad. And you can't put musicians under that kind of pressure every year. So, you know, we do our best to make it as, uh, as easy as possible. But uh, then, we have in New Zealand, I'm thinking of the two recent orchestras at the moment, um, a wonderful kind of um, 
democracy really in the orchestra, which is constantly evolving and changing new administrations and uh, government money, but also um, opportunities to raise uh, money for special projects privately and, uh, you know, one way or another. Fantastic orchestra. I mean, the quality is just amazing. Um, I've just given up the music directorship and I'm going back to doing quite often guest conducting of Slovak Philharmonic. And that's mm -hmm. another whole, um, an orchestra that was founded in 1949. The principal conductors were uh, Ludovic Reiter, the great Slovakian, and uh, Václav Tadic, the great Czech. And they were the, you know, so the orchestra is, is absolutely terrific, but it's it's sort of rooted in a, a kind of administrative um, bureaucracy of its own, which comes from the old communist time still. And I see that evolving, you know, everything just takes time to change. It's yeah. interesting, James, that because you're talking about three orchestras there that rely heavily on state funding, government funding, and obviously influence that goes along with that, as you say. Um, does that change the attitude of the musicians towards their work, though? Do you find that, um, despite the constant assessment in Korea, say, which sounds like Ofsted in, in British schools, of course, doesn't it, um, and the tension that creates, do you find that the musicians have uh, a more relaxed attitude towards their music making? They're not constantly on the edge of their seats wondering if uh, this is the last concert or, or anything like that? You know, I think... I can say that there is a danger of that, right? So there is a danger of that, of becoming a little complacent. However, they seem to have responded well. I mean, one of the things that I've always tried to um, instill in all the orchestras I work with, and that comes from you know the old days when I was assistant with Abado and the youth orchestras and just seeing how he worked and how Marcel worked in Cleveland, um, the expect we have to build the expectation of everybody, whatever the system, that they turn up for a first rehearsal knowing the notes, really knowing the music, you know. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, in terms of evaluation, I, 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 I think that's a very important aspect. After all, you know, orchestra. These orchestras are a wonderful mixture of experienced players coming often towards the end of careers, of great careers and great dedication to their music making in the orchestra, and young people who are coming in with more fire and ambition, perhaps. And the mixture is terrific. But our job as conductor is to try to um, just to inspire them. I think, and um, yeah, there's bound to be a danger. Isn't though in all orchestras, whatever the quality of someone who's been there for, you know, 30, 40 years, mm. um, you know, feeling that they're looking for something from us to inspire them and to remind them that, I mean, everybody, um, when they were so young, they gave up so much to study the instrument. They put in so much. Why? Because of love of music. Just that. So whatever the system, yeah, there are dangers here and there, whichever system, obviously. Um, and and we're not, thankfully, in a world where the conductor would look at look at somebody who played a wrong note and said, you're fired tomorrow. Thankfully, we're way beyond that. Um, so I think it's, I find more and more, and I don't know whether I'm successful at it, but I find that I, my mindset is just, you know, I think it just tries to, 
um, worry less about external things. And when you're on that podium, it sort of feels more and more, in a way, like a comfortable home. Um, and, you know, now it's just a question of the music. And I think when the leader is focused on that and shares the, I mean, it sounds a bit sort of trite, I suppose, but shares the love of music or doesn't compromise their own love of music and doesn't give up on people, then people, all we can ask is they do give of their best, whether it's the London Symphony, the Berlin Philharmonic, or the Dijon Philharmonic, or whatever it is, Fort Wayne, wherever, right? It's just give people the, op our job is to, and then the administrative support with us, a partnership, is to make sure people have the best um, opportunity to give of their love of music and share that with the audiences. And that's something the pandemic has taught us, reminded us of, the, the role of the audience and how much we missed the audience when we were just streaming. I mean, I heard this from every orchestra, every player. That's intriguing. You get onto audiences and, and, and post-pandemic stuff. And uh, I kind of want to dwell on what you've been saying because I find it really inspirational for myself. And I imagine other conductors, other musicians who are listening to this as well, that um, it's only by being true to your musical instincts, as you're saying, and being uncompromising about that, that you can hope to be an inspiration to other musicians around you. And I, I love that. And I'm going to take that away with me. So thanks very much for that, James. Um, but but the, the, there must be other pressures on a music director, say, being on the podium. And as you, as you said, the concerns about the well-being of the musicians, the social well-being of the musicians when they're not at work and the longevity of the orchestra, how secure is it? <clears throat> and the audience coming back. Do you feel that that adds attention to the music director role that you could do without when you want to make music? Well, there's a, there are several aspects to that. And, and when you're a music director in different places, different countries, the responsibilities are quite different from one to an, another place. But in terms of, um, I mean, the, the part of the music directorship, I think we all probably don't like very much at all, is if there are personnel issues, problems that we are responsible to deal with. And um, those can be very tricky especially in the modern age you know uh, because i'm so aware of the fact that we spoke before that everybody came into the orchestra they won a place and they have they, they have livelihood they have their families so we have to deal very carefully so there are those issues that um you have to be very careful i think as a younger conductor um you know you're doing a rehearsal and something doesn't go well and you know there's pressure on a particular player historically that, you know, and um, to, 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 to deliver the goods or maybe they slacked a little bit or, you know, could be just something physical is, is inhibiting their ability to give it their best. You know, sometimes I know um, that would be distracting for me. I'd be thinking, well, you know, half the brain is constantly music, half the, well, what am I going to do about that? Um, and so that, is also brings me to the thought that the best experiences I've had is where you have a really strong, loyal administrative partner 
just as soon as you get into these matters. And also, when you have a strong uh, orchestral involvement in their own lives, um, you know, where they, the, the leaders of sections have responsibility and can be partners with you um, and take responsibility for the, the good things and the sometimes tricky things. Uh, so it's all about the partnerships. As a, as a music director, you need these partnerships to be effective. Otherwise, um, if you know, it can be weak administration can easily undermine those things and, and and point the fingers in the wrong direction. So that's something I've sort of <laughs> observed from these decades, I guess. But having said that. Um, I would, I'm, you know, in absolute awe of these young conductors today who get up in front of orchestras with such ease and are clearly just inspiring orchestras. It took me much, much longer. I mean, the kind of what I'm talking about now. Um, and I said, I feel so at home on the rostrum. And now I wish I had learned the lesson of how to get myself into that psychological state, uh, you know, 40, 30, 20, 10 years ago, even, you know? And uh, so I'm not so sure. This is only from, from my experience. I think, you know, things are changing and involve. I think, I think very important is the involvement of the musicians in their own lives, um, sensibly so. So, I mean, after all, they want to do a rehearsal and get home. But, um, you know, within an orchestra, you have not only great musicians, you have great musical ideas, you have great marketing ideas, you have great PR ideas, you have people with all kinds of skills and extraordinary intelligence. And um, it doesn't make sense to ignore them and not to give them a channel to bring out these ideas. Well, James, you talk about other young conductors. And of course, the world now seems to be absolutely full of conductors and social media has brought uh, the, the playing field um, to a different height let's say and so we're, we're aware of of people's work all around the world and aspiring conductors and established conductors all of that if you had to advise a young conductor today uh, about all aspects of the business. What's the, the one you'd focus on most? What's the one thing you'd pull somebody aside for and say, listen, you need to know this? Oh, goodness. I think it would, there are so many things come to mind, but if there's one, I think it would be the, and this sounds perhaps a little pretentious because they probably are anyway, but to be sure that you're putting the music above everything. I mean, music and people, music and your orchestra, and the musicians above everything else that uh, you know you you're not focusing on career of course you, you have to focus on career somebody has to focus for you um not be distracted from your love of music and your study of scores and your study you're studying music from the score not from youtube or something like that you know it's really studying music and one of the great because that reminds me of one of the great pleasures as we get older I, i'm finding is um the, the the and that was during the pandemic the time to restudy things i thought i knew and be absolutely horrified about what i thought i knew then and now i mean maybe i maybe my performances are less good now i don't know but at least in my head i think wow 
goodness, you just learn more and more. Again, this is a cliched old old man argument isn't it cliched old man thought that oh god i you realize more and more what you don't know about a very familiar piece of music it's quite stunning isn't it and <laughs> um I, i'm a bit younger than you and i find the same um the pandemic helped that but of course when you come to a score that you studied intensely a long time ago but for whatever reason haven't managed to do since then and you get it out and you look at your notes, you look at your phrasing, you look at any other commentary in there and you think, what the hell was I thinking? Did I really try to convince people to do it that way? Um, and, and that's what I sort of wonder uh, about younger conductors. And you just alluded to um, YouTube as being a learning opportunity for conductors. And it, it certainly is. And, and when I've been on juries of conducting competitions, it's been quite apparent that a lot of people are um, choreographing rather than um, expressing. And uh, they are focused naturally in a competition on it being a career step and being very conscious, very aware of the, of the need to have these steps in, in uh, their progress. But it's always the ones who put the music first and react to what's happening in front of them who you are more convinced by and who you want to see uh, furthering their, their musical careers. Um, but I'd love and thank you for what you said about just be involved in the music, be involved in the score and be sincere about it. That's, that's wonderful. Great advice, James. I'm going to turn things around a little bit now and I'm going to pull you back to um, this continent, to North America, and to get an overview, if I can, from you about the state of orchestras in this country. Orchestras which are self-funding in the main and have to go through the most bizarre and convoluted of experiences to raise that money. Um, what do you think the future is for orchestras here? I think the future is terrific, providing we don't lose sight of what it is we're doing, and providing we don't get too distracted and that we don't start to t entirely program from the marketing or PR department, you know. In other words, let's an example that I've been thinking about, the current young generation. Uh, who, and all of us, I mean, our minds are moving so fast in a kind of distracted way these days through technology, you know, whether it's young guys, you know, folk, Zoom, I mean, they're, they're on their phones just simply texting abbreviated sentences, abbreviated thoughts, etc., etc. You know, it's a well-worn argument. And I wonder whether now with the sort of music we have, let's take an example, Bruckner Symphony, you know, coming into a real welcoming environment, um, that means, you know, all kinds of things, right? What we do with an audience before the uh, A, and that's another whole thing. You know, we've got to think about the dreadful theater of what we do, the way we ignore an audience. And then suddenly, if you're going to a concert the first time, people are practicing on stage, you know, giving away the lines. You imagine the Royal Shakespeare Company doing that? 
And then, you know, somebody wanders on, there's a bit of applause and there's a note sounded and then people again start to play something. Then everything dies down. Then a guy or woman comes on stage, turns bows, turns the back to the audience and then the music starts. And they've been our audience since the moment they left their train, their car, their bus to the moment they get home. So, you know, there's a whole world of um, stuff to talk about there. But if we can have that hall feeling comfortable for the young generation, let's concentrate on them for the moment. People have never been to a concert of any age, right? You come in there and you play them a Brooklyn Symphony, but you make them feel comfortable there. And suddenly you're in a world where this long paragraphs, long sentences flow over you. It can take, you know, I think this is an amazing opportunity that we have. I mean, I use Bruckner as a, an extreme example, but think about it. You know, we mustn't, um, you know, cut the corners off the Bruckner Symphony just to make it fit. We don't want to produce the Reader's Digest version or put a click track or a rock beat with it. No, we've got to trust the music of the ages, as well as encouraging new music of every sort. And, you know, I've always believed as well, sorry, this is getting, this is spinning off too many different directions, but music is music. I mean, we basically have the 12 notes, you know, um, and what you do with them turns out to be um, who plays them, which order they're put and so on. We call it jazz, we call it rock, rap, we call it classical, which is a horrible definition of what we do is so off-putting and it does, I mean, most of what we're doing is not from the classical era anyway. So I don't like that title. I think we should call music orchestral music, quartets, rap, whatever. Music should be music. So that's another thing that I feel very strongly about. And I, easy to say, difficult to actually um, find the context for that but you know if we can get people into the concert hall by not calling it classical not because that's already an off put for a lot of people and if we can just you know convince through the emotional impact of this music the spiritual impact of this music we know it has you know people respond to music whether it's you know, the Beatles, whether it's rap, whether it's rock, whether it's jazz, whatever, they respond emotionally. It's an emotional response, mostly. Of course, the intellect is involved, and the more you want to know, learn about how they spice that Indian meal, you, you know, you can enjoy that Indian meal on a, in a different way, but you don't have to know about the spices to enjoy the Indian meal. Music's the same. But, you know, it's how to get people in across... In, into the halls or wherever the, the performance is, how to make the 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 theatre, I'm serious, theatre of it sound, look good, how to, we're going to look after you, and then the, the performance off the stage of every musician is just committed, like um, you go to Broadway, you know, those, those performances, every night, every matinee, however many... People are giving everything in the audience. And it's the same thing. We have to inspire our orchestras without trying. We have, because that wouldn't work. But we hope, effortlessly we hope, our job is to inspire the musicians that, that somebody's hearing that for the first time looks like everybody is engaged. Because we are theatre as well. 
I, I love everything you're saying, James. And, and the, the Broadway analogy is a very telling one, I think, because as you say, you go to those shows and everybody gives everything all the time and the audience goes away thrilled. I love the analogy as well with an Indian meal or whatever culinary delight it is. You don't have to know what goes into it necessarily to thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, that's fantastic. You touch on, on a subject that so often has this horrible term when we're in board meetings, committee meetings, whatever sort of brainstorming event there, and it's talking about being relevant. And I think that's a red herring, and I think you've said exactly the same, that music is music, and our business, our classical music business, has been its own worst enemy oh, yeah. forever. And we've created this aura around it, this protective um, shield, if you like, that now is just kicking us in the backside. I read something the other day, I was intrigued by this, because I don't think the solution is rocket science. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Um, and you were talking about the Cleveland Orchestra earlier, where I know you, you were assistant, is that right, with Mazel? Yeah. yeah. So one of the earliest conductors of, of the orchestra in Cleveland was um, Nikolai Sokolov, mm -hmm. and that's a bit over 100 years ago. And I read somewhere that he implored all of the local grandees, the councillors, whatever, to put on concerts for children. Mm -hmm. And it's as fundamental as that. It's, it's exposure. And we're still wrestling with the, the notion of whether that's a valid approach or not today, or whether it can be afforded, whether it's going to be cut back. Absolutely. I mean, I love what you say about, you know, the problem of the, it's just lazy thinking, to be really honest, at this old age. <laughs> it's lazy thinking to say, well, it's not relevant. I mean, that's absolutely absurd. Of course, it's relevant. It's music, you know, and it's emotion. It's relevant. Um, the, the question is, how do we bring people in you know if we don't and it's a total lack of confidence as well that people have how many organizations are run by people that are really passionate about music anymore and if you're not really passionate about music you don't understand it you don't and i don't mean understand in an educated way if you don't have it in your blood then how can you find ways to market things without using the lazy old argument that it's not relevant and it's European or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, you have to have organizations where boards, administrations, okay, you need some professionals that, you know, may not be going to so many concerts. I understand, but within balance, we need passion back and belief, belief. Belief in the music, belief in new composers, belief in the young, belief in these wonderful, you know, it's appalling when we look back. I was looking, that's right, I was looking at an old performance of Walton First Symphony, because I'm doing it in a, a week or so in Korea, right? And I was looking, I remember hearing when that Previn recording came out, and Walton liked it very much. Then there's a, a recording of Walton conducting it himself, which is fantastic. And clearly the Previn performance is very inspired by that. But why I wanted to mention it now, there's a video, a wonderful video of Previn rehearsing the LSO. Um, it was a bit of 
what birthday was would it have been of Walton's 50th or something like that and they the BBC gave a lot of time to a studio rehearsal black and white and a studio performance which is on YouTube I looked at it oh my god yeah I've forgotten they're all men in my lifetime, they were all men, not only the Vienna Philharmonic giving up, but I remember that even when Abada took over the London Symphony, it was in that transformation stage. Can you believe it today in our lifetime? Yeah, well, no, the, the, most orchestras now, uh, 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 so many orchestras, I should say, are at least 50% women. And that is, is fantastic. But you look at orchestras of that period and you're right, I mean, it's all men. Embarrassing to admit it. And then... Yeah. You know, you think of, I mean, not to go off on another tangent, but, you know, these incredibly talented um, um, conductors, female and otherwise today, but at last, you know, the opportunity is there. For example, I mean, just to name one, and I'll only mention one because of the relevance to New Zealand, Gemma New, who's just been appointed principal conductor there. You know, I mean, Thank God that this is possible today. And the women composers, you know, that we're now rediscovering. And, you know, yeah, I mean, things are, let alone, um, you know, talk of different ethnic um, um, problems that have been over the, over the years and, uh, you know, and in colleges and so on and so forth. I mean, this is a whole, whole, whole subject because it just appalls me. You know, we were brought up, weren't we? you know, not seeing color, I mean, genuinely not seeing, you know, I mean, but, but looking back, realizing that I was growing up in a, in a environment where this still existed and all of these prejudices were there unspoken. And now seeing the way things are opening up, I mean, this is wonderful. This is what gives great cause for optimism, I think. Right? Uh, absolutely. There's, there's, there's nothing uh, there's there's nothing to to prevent orchestras o- opening up and there's everything to gain from it. Uh, the whole uh, symphonic world, or classical music world. I'm trying to find a term. I'm failing miserably to describe what we do. The music that we're we're involved in. We've got everything to gain by being open and receptive and uh, and appealing to everybody. I think that's the only aspect of relevance that that interests me. Uh, We don't have to prove the the relevance of the actual music itself. We don't have to, as you said earlier, add a click track or um, some sort of rock beat, a dance beat to it. It's just not necessary. I love speaking to you because you get fired up and you always get me fired up as well. And it's, it's absolutely wonderful chatting with you. Now let's talk about, if we can, what non-musical aspects of being a conductor do you actually enjoy? Uh-huh. By the way, just one quick comment at the end of what I last said. I, I, there's a lot of work still to do. I mean, if you're, a, let's say, a black musician, a female um, composer or conduct, conductor, so I know there is still a lot of work to do. I don't say, oh, great, we've arrived there, you know, put, them, put ourselves in their shoes. Um, the other aspects of, <laughs> well, you know, there is, it's, I, I'm very, very lucky, uh, have been um, for 30 years to be married to a woman who's a viola player and has other interests, horses and all kinds of things, who has um, stood by me through this crazy traveling schedule 
bringing up the most wonderful daughter. Or like you, you've had this experience too, and the wonderful daughter who's now 28 and um, has understood it all, I guess. We all have the most wonderful relationship, travel over the years when we could. I mean, that was one of the great joys, especially when my daughter was young, that we could travel. She came eight times to New Zealand while I was music director there in a very young age every year. And um, still was there with me a year ago as well with us. Um, so the travel I've, in the older days, <laughs> before COVID, quite enjoyed. I mean, you know, you get used to the very long trips and they're actually a time to to yourself. You read books, even the very long, you know, and the, the craziness is you get to know in that, you know, you get arrive in Singapore to change to go to Australia and there you run off the plane and there's a beautiful lounge where there's a shower and you get to all of these kind of routines, hotels that you, you go back to nice hotels that, that you feel like they become a second home. They have to, otherwise you go crazy, you know? And thank goodness when I, the start of my life of traveling, um, you know, was before obviously cell phones or before, before you even dare could really pick up the phone long distance in the hotel room and not get charged half your fee. You know, and so we, I, when I, we've moved house recently, we've sold house and uh, we're in a, a lovely rental property at the moment um, while we figure out what to do next. But um, I was looking back, what was I going to say? The, a lot of these, yeah, looking back at a lot of stuff that I stocked away, now I've thrown most of it out. Um, um, and there were all these letters that I was sending to my mum or to family members, my then girlfriends or whatever, you know, from afar and replies. We used to communicate on these longer trips when you're away for three weeks or a month or two weeks even by post. When I was assistant in Cleveland there, I found all this correspondence by post because the phone was too expensive, this great black box in the corner of the room. So the collected letters of James Judd will stop in 2010. Is that right? And anything beyond that? <laughs> no interest. But I enjoy, you know, I enjoy, you, you find friends everywhere. Music, you know, the musicians, we get to their homes. We enjoy meals together. We, we get back together and we, we, uh, have a, we have great friendships, I think. We're lucky when we're conductors. You know, we develop wonderful friendships and friends who stay with you a long time, although you never see them and you don't have time or, you know, or other things get in the way of even communicating for a long time. Well, and and musicians, of course, understand that, which is why those friendships, they work across the ages because yeah. everybody's in the same position, as it were, moving on to the next gig That's and right. then you get back together and it's, and it's a joy. Yeah, so, you know, I've made the most of it. I still do. I mean, the traveling has become, you know, more complicated. Thankfully, that's you know, the, the, the sort of PCR test before. I think I've taken, well, I lost count of 85 PCR tests because for every bit of traveling is one before, one when you arrive or two when you arrive, one before you, know, you leave and they mount up in no time at all. That's thankfully starting to ease up for some countries. Um, and the traveling is nowhere near so much fun. I mean, for everybody, whether you're a conductor or anybody, anybody now, the crowds and the, you know, the way that the airlines are coming out of the, the, the pandemic is um, pretty, 
pretty difficult, difficult for them, I understand too. But so it's not so much fun that travel, but you get on with it, you know, I mean, that's it, because the result is you're bloody lucky to be arriving to make music somewhere. People are actually paying us to do this. And uh, therefore, let's not forget that aspect of it. You know, that's that's no really reason. important. So, James, this has been wonderful. And as I said, you've inspired me in so many different areas. I'm sure the listeners as well. Um, I want to kind of wrap this up by asking you, um, so what does the future hold for James Judd? Well, if they go on asking more concerts. I mean, you know, the lovely thing, we talked about young conductors. We We didn't talk much about old conductors, you know, but... You like to think, it used to be the case that they always said, and I think it still is really, that you get better as you get older. And I think in many respects, we really honestly do. And so the, the ambition is to go on for another 50 years, you know. It might be, maybe that's impossible, I don't know. But we'll see with all the new um, technology that can help keep us going. As long as the brain cells are still functioning, somebody wants to have you go make music. I, that's what I, I want to do. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't fill up the calendar perhaps quite so frenetically as I used to. Um, I'm now, you know, within my own world of, you know, of possibilities. I try to take on the things I really enjoy. So I take on, you know, a lot of education projects as well as just glamorous concerts. So I really, really have a burning sort of feeling about that, have a Elsie uh, Stemmer program in Miami. It's been going for maybe 15 years now, and that's, I don't have to do anything with it, but you know, I, I love encouraging those programs wherever I go, that kind of thing. So I love to do more of that, the outreach, education, whatever you want to call that. And just, um, you know, to have the opportunity to be on those rostrums and making the music that means most to me, I guess. Well, James, that's absolutely fantastic. I'm very grateful to you. And uh, I can tell you now, there's no worry about those gray cells being at all diminished. You're, you're, you're full of vim and vigor and amazing thoughts and uh, inspirational commentary as well. So, hey, James, Joe, thank you so much for this. You're too kind, Andrew, but it's been a tremendous pleasure catching up with you. And, and I feel inspired likewise. It's really wonderful. I have the, the opportunity through Zoom to see you as well as hear you. <laughs> well, we'll draw a line entry to that. And uh, thank you again, James Judd. You're fantastic. Thank you. Take care, Andrew. Bye-bye. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point. <laughs>